Well, we're, we're glad you're worshiping with us today. Welcome. And if you happen to be here for the first time, we're, we're in uh, the middle of a series right now that we're calling Story. And this is a little bit different than what we uh, are, are normally doing on a, on a Sunday morning during the message, uh, where we're walking through a, a passage of Scripture, usually a book of the Bible. Um, here we're talking, uh, th- this, in this uh, four-week series, we're talking about story. And last week, we, we talked about God's story, the story of redemption, which began even before the universe was created and now continues to unfold even this very day. Uh, if you're his child, then you, you are swept up into the narrative of God's saving purposes. This means that your own individual story matters, that God sees you for who you are, that you matter to him and your story matters to him because he formed you and made you in his image specifically to be a part of this beautiful and true saga. Here's where we're going with this, though. It's important, I think, to to kind of see the big picture. It's easy to lose track of where we are sometimes. I don't know about you, but have you ever... If you ever started to tell a story and kind of forget your place and forget why you started to tell the story, you go off on rabbit trails. Maybe you've picked up a poorly written book and you're like, where in the world is this thing going? I can't follow what the author's doing here. Uh, Maybe even it's happened while listening to a sermon. The story seemed to have no cohesion. Um, Let's be honest, life can feel like that sometimes. wonder, what's God doing here? It feels like my life is just a string of rabbit trails. It's easy to lose our way. But fortunately, we have a God who hasn't lost our way. God has lost his way. God is not like us. He doesn't get lost in the story. Uh, I love what Ephesians 1.11 tells us. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is at work bringing all things, using all things to write this story. We know We are situated in the middle of the plan of the sovereign God of the universe. And when we believe that, it really changes how we look at trials and unexpected bumps in the road. God is weaving a grand narrative. So then the church becomes an intersection of our own individual stories. I came up with this little graphic this week that helped me think through it a little bit. But uh, God's, God's overarching story... Uh, includes you and me, everybody in this room, really all, all believers from all around the world. And as our stories, as our, our individual lives intersect and it becomes our story, our collective, part of our collective story, that's, that's where the church, where your story and my story and the person next to you and the person across the room, where our stories intersect, that's, that's God's people fellowshipping with one another. And if we're to have true fellowship, if our story is to take shape. If we're to be real with one another, we're going to have to be vulnerable with one another. That can be a scary word, vulnerable, vulnerability. But in order for true fellowship to take place, that must be experienced. We can't come in with pretense and and just revealing a little bit of us, a little bit of ourselves, hedging our bets, putting on our masks, Real fellowship takes getting real. It takes vulnerability. So as I was thinking about this, I thought, if I'm going to preach about it, I I should practice it as well. They tell you in seminary not to talk too much about yourself in sermons, and that's typically very, very good advice. 
Uh, sermons are expositing and unfolding the word of God and to look to God. And that's my hope in telling my story this morning is to point to God and what he's been doing in my heart and what he can do in your heart as well. I don't share this with you because I want to talk about myself. I'm much more com- comfortable talking about the Bible than I am myself. But I want you to hear a little bit of the journey that I've been on over the last decade or so. It feels like a journey that's one step forward, two steps back sometime. I don't know if I can put words to, to name it, but I think maybe it's, I could call it the, the journey to discover my heart. I grew up in a, and, and some of these aspects of this story I've shared in illustrations and at different points along the way, but um, I don't think I've ever put it all together and shared it with you before. I grew up in a Christian home, Christian parents, three younger brothers, uh, we had a pretty normal life, uh, relatively free from a lot of big trauma and drama. Uh, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. There was Awana. There was, there was uh, Bible studies and prayer meetings. There was, uh, I was part of our, our church Bible quiz team where we memorized scripture and competed against other churches. Um, missions trips. The God, God used these things to begin to shape my faith. And I knew from an early age that God had called me into ministry, that God had laid on my heart this burden to want to be a part of what he was doing uh, and to use my life fully for that. Uh, I was particularly drawn towards international missions. I always loved it when a missionary speaker came and shared. I was on the edge of my seat. A lot of times I'd see people snoring through the, the slideshows that missionaries would share. And I was, I was like, this is awesome. I love this. This is great to see how God is at work around the globe. But I also developed this sort of, um, I learned early on that you could, you could bring a mask to church, that you could put on this superficial air that wasn't necessarily true, but it sure did impress people. And I discovered early on that I liked to impress people. I really liked to impress church people. And I discovered that you could do spirit, do and say spiritual things and get lots of pats on the back, lots of attaboys, lots of congratulations about how godly you were. And so I discovered pretty quickly the right things to say and the right people to say them in front of. Um, my youth leaders looked at me as this quintessential uh, leader among our, our, my peers I had, I had so many people duped that I had this amazing walk with God. But in reality, there was all kinds of issues and problems going on in my heart. But I was careful not to reveal that. And I'll explain why in a moment. I think I've shared this before, but I, I think that one of the capstones or one of the, the, the stories that encapsulates my sort of pseudo-spirituality, my Phariseeism, was when, I, I don't know how old I was. I know I wasn't a teenager yet. I was probably only 10 or 11. And we must not have had any kind of youth stuff going on that particular Wednesday night because I was in the adult prayer meeting. And there was only probably 15 or 20 adults. And there we were in a big circle in the old sanctuary at Lakewood Baptist Church. And um, we were going around the room and everybody was sharing something that they were thankful for. And I actually found myself, as it was getting closer and closer to my spot in the circle, thinking, what would impress people the most? What would, what would stir their hearts to 
for them to just realize what, what an awesome, spiritually mature young man that I am. And I, I, just before it was my turn, I had it. It clicked. I knew what to say. And so when it, it came to my spot to share what I was thankful for, I kind of puffed out my chest and said, I'm thankful for my parents' discipline. <laughs> and everybody oohed and awed and, and patted my mom on the back for what a great mom she was and nodded their head with all sorts of affirmative nods. It was a big lie. It was baloney. What 11-year-old kid is thankful for their parents' discipline? I hated spankings. I hated to be disciplined. And being the oldest, I was still, you know, I didn't have anybody to watch and learn from. I was the one making the dumb mistakes. So disciplined frequently. I, in my heart, I despised it. But I knew what to say. And so I learned, I learned how to put on the mask and how to wear the mask and how to play the game. Outwardly, people thought everything was great, that I was this godly young man. I, I, don't, I don't believe that it all was a sham. I, I believe I was saved. But so much of it was lived for others. So much of it was to cover up the sin that was in my heart. The first memory I have of there being some sort of awareness that something was off, that something was wrong, that this mask thing had, had evolved into walls to keep people out was at my grandmother's funeral. My grandmother passed away in April of my senior year, just before I graduated from high school, April of 1998. And uh, I loved my grandma. My grandma for my whole life, lived within just a couple miles of us. We saw her at least once a week, usually multiple times a week. If we didn't see her, she would call us on the phone, ask us what was for dinner, and uh, talk. And we always kind of a joke among my brothers and I, because we didn't have caller ID back then. And it was like, hello? Oh, hey, Graham. And the other brothers would laugh, because we knew it was like an hour-long conversation. Um, but I, I loved her. And uh, when she passed, I remember being at the viewing... And, uh, you know, have you ever watched a movie where the, the main character sort of can pause the scene and everybody freezes mid-action and they get a chance to just kind of walk around and see everybody and see what, what's, what's happening, everybody frozen in motion. I had a moment like that at the, uh, at the viewing and, and I, I just sort of stopped. I was in the middle of the room and I'm looking around at all these people, very few of whom knew and my grandmother or was or as close to my grandmother as, as I was. A lot of people I didn't even know. And I'm looking and I'm seeing people weep and, 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 and stand near the casket just sobbing. And it dawned on me, this is my grandmother and I, I haven't shed a tear yet. What's wrong? Why? I wasn't trying. I wasn't like telling myself, be a tough guy. Don't cry. Real men don't cry. I, I didn't say any of those things. But it had dawned on me to cry. And then I wanted to cry, but the tears wouldn't come. And that was the first time I realized that there were some walls up emotionally that um, were not healthy. I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how those walls got there. But I remember thinking, something's wrong. And as we went throughout that those couple hours, like I, just, I was struggling so much with everybody else's emotion. Because I wasn't feeling it. I didn't know how to process it. And my natural response to emotion that I'm not comfortable with is humor. 
I tried to turn it into a, a, a funny situation because I, don't, I didn't know what to do with it. And I still remember one poor, unsuspecting lady. At this point, I'd had dozens and dozens of people come up and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry about your grandmother. Well, I, don't, I didn't know what to say to that. I didn't know how to process it. So I did the one thing that I know how to do was to try to be funny about it. And it was, it was my cousin's girlfriend's mom. I still remember she came up. Jeremiah, I'm so sorry about your grandmother. And I looked at her and I said, why? It wasn't your fault. I thought that was funny. She did not. She just kind of shuffled away uncomfortably and ended the conversation. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with what I was feeling or not feeling. It wasn't until a few years ago that I I began to understand a little bit of what was going on in my heart and what led to it. Let me preface what I'm about to say with, um, I love my father. I, I, my father passed away in 2013, suddenly at 58. Um, and uh, he, in many respects, was a very good dad, very sacrificial. Uh, I love the times he would, he would, he poured concrete. He was a did flat work and just beat up his body and he would come home after a you know 12 hour day just exhausted I would still remember he'd use the last hours of daylight to play some baseball with us in the backyard and uh, would would give sacrificially in so many ways but you see my dad had grown up in a in a house that was filled with emotional abandonment was filled with shame um, his dad was an alcoholic um, got saved at the end of his life but had spent his whole life drinking and emotionally closed off. My dad would say that really the only time he could have a conversation with his dad was if they were in a fishing boat somewhere together. He treasured those times to to get away and fish and uh, in in those rare opportunities to just get a glimpse of his dad's humanity. His mom was emotionally distant, really didn't know how to be a mom. Both of her parents had died when she was very little. um, And she had her her own scars, her own hurt that she brought into this family. Every single one of my, my dad's siblings struggled with addiction, including my, my father. And he came and brought this shame and this hurt into, into our home. He tried to do better than what he had grown up with. He tried to be better, but still projected his own insecurities on us through humor, a humor that mocked. Whenever he felt vulnerability, whenever he sensed weakness, he used biting humor to try to ease the situation. He never learned to process his own hurt. and So when we demonstrated hurt and vulnerability, he had no clue what to do, so he would mock. I remember instances where we'd be out in the backyard playing baseball, which we, which we loved, but if we weren't playing very well that day, he'd struck out a few times or making bad throws, his comment would often be, I'm going to go get the neighbor girls from across the street and they can show you how to do this. Zingers that he thought were funny but would sting, would, would cut to our heart. And we learned that we had to laugh it off. We had to pretend like it didn't hurt. And so we began to add bricks to a wall without knowing it that was forming in our life. Any chance of vulnerability, it was, it was picked on, it was mocked, it was ridiculed. I still remember one time, I was probably 13, and my dad caught me leafing through the lingerie section of a J.C. Penney catalog. And rather than what I needed as a father come along and talk to me about sexual temptation, about 
pornography. He simply looked at me and shook his head and said, pervert. Little did I know that he was, I found out years later, he was speaking out of the shame of his own addiction to pornography. He didn't know how to process that. And so it was shame, it was ridicule, it was mock. And so brick by brick, without knowing it, I built this fantastic wall because I discovered that it was easier just to not be vulnerable, easier just to not experience hurt. If when I put myself out there, it got stung, it got mocked, it was hurt, well, then I just won't put myself out there. And so without realizing it, I developed my own coping mechanism. A lot of us have our own coping mechanisms when we go through something like this. For me, mine was solitude. I discovered if I was alone, hey, if you're not around people, people don't hurt you. It's very simple. So I hid behind books and reading and solitude and just kind of, I had, I had a bedroom down in the basement of our house. I'd retreat down there and man, I could read. I could listen to the Tigers game on the radio and nobody could bother me. It was fantastic until it wasn't. Brene Brown says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I heard enough of the gospel growing up that I, I knew God loved me, at least I knew up here. But there was this shame that hung over it all, thinking that I, I'm not going to make it. I'm not worth it. And so fear and shame became a constant companion. I hated to try things because if I fail, I'm just going to get picked on and mocked. And so um, I hadn't realized, though, that in doing so, I, I was giving up the full range of emotions through which God longs for us to experience life. I learned to relate to God through my mind. I love theology. But one of the potential dangers of loving theology is that you can talk a lot about God without deeply loving God. You can explain what God's word says about love without deeply feeling and experiencing his love for you. I read recently in a, a book by Larry Crabb, and he's, he was talking about an individual in there, and I thought, man, this could have been me. This describes me. Years of prayer and Bible study had made him into everything he should be except a man of love. That would describe where I was at. I went on to Bible college and it fed my desire for knowledge. I learned, I studied, I read extra books. I dove deep into theology. I began to learn more and more about God. I started preaching some. I could talk about God. I could hide behind knowledge. I could hide behind studying because it all looks so spiritual. I mean, studying the scriptures and having big theology books. It looks so good. It looks so godly. Surely he must be near to God, right? I began to have inklings of a thirst for grace, this thirst for nearness to God. I had teachers there at, at Bible college that would just talk about grace in a way that I had never heard about before, that I had never experienced. I longed for that, but I didn't know how to, how to get close to God in that way. Because I couldn't, 
couldn't see past my walls. Marrying Elisa and experiencing more emotions and, 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 and a fuller range of what it means to be alive and be human. I began to see that there's, there's more to this. There's, there's more to life than this, this safe bubble, this protection that I had carved out for myself. But I didn't know how to break through and, and my, my walled-offedness has hurt her so much throughout the years of our marriage. Different times I would pick up books that would, that would sort of, I'd, I'd see that flicker, reading Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel or hearing uh, George Walker Sr. Uh, teach us about grace and the cross. I, I, I had this thirst, I had little tastes, but I, did, I didn't know where to go. And so I would retreat into the well-worn paths. Even when there was some growth, there were situations that would arise that reinforced the lies that I had come to believe. I'll never forget the time when we were, when we were missionaries in China and our team had uh, left the country to meet in Thailand for some, for some uh, meetings with, with other, uh, other missionaries. And you know, we could have a lot more freedom to talk about what we were doing when we were outside of the, the closed country there. And so I, I remember at that point, though, we were really, Elise and I were really, really struggling. We were hurting. There were uh, several just major life events that had taken place back here in the States that we weren't able to be a part of, some births, some deaths, at least one marriage in the family, just a lot of family stuff. And we were feeling the, the loneliness of culture shock, not being able to speak the language. And then on top of that, her grandfather had just died a couple days before um, that she had been very, very close to practically. I mean, her grandparents practically raised her in many ways. And uh, we were just hurting and we needed someone to talk to and just share the ache that we were feeling. I'll never forget there was this couple that they, they had just shared some dynamic things. And we just we thought just in listening to them and in talking to them one on one a little bit that they would be the perfect couple that we, we could talk to. They were in leadership over our field. And we, we thought this these are, these are folks that would be safe to talk to. And I'll never forget. We just, we, we set up a time to meet with them there in Thailand at the hotel. And we got together and we just unburdened. We just laid everything out, just kind of, just all over the place. And uh, shared our aches. And, and, and I'll, I'll never forget the look on their face. It was just this look of horror. And why in the world did you tell us that? Can you just please put that back in the box? I'll never forget the, um, the fear, the, the shame that I felt just as, as they're like, hey, uh, well, let's pray and, and then quickly get away from us. Um, it reminded me, wall needs to stay up. Wall needs to stay up. It's not safe on the other side of the wall. But God is good and would not let me remain where I was. And sometime in 2012 or 2012, 13, when I was the chaplain over at Eagle Village, over between um, Everett and Reed City, uh, I met a man by the name of Kevin Butcher. Kevin had come to speak to the youth there at Eagle Village. And if you're familiar with Eagle Village, you know that these teens have come from just all kinds of hurt and um, just trauma. And so I knew that he was going to come and just try to encourage them and challenge them. And my job as chaplain that day was to, Kevin got there earlier in the day, and my job was to kind of like lead him around, give him a tour, take him to lunch with the teens, and sort of be his, his chauffeur until it was chapel time in the afternoon. Well, um, 
Kevin immediately started asking me some deeply penetrating questions. And uh, I remind you, I, I, am, I was a professional Pharisee, lifelong Pharisee, and I knew how to put the mask, and I knew how to dupe religious people, even, even pastors. But Kevin was a pastor that saw past all of it, and I, know, I realized it immediately, that none of my pat answers, none of my masks, nothing would work, none of my diversions. Kevin, Kevin made a beeline for my heart. And I never had anybody do it like, like he did. And I, I was so ticked off at this man. Um, I'm like, well, you're here for the kids. Why are you talking to me like this? Why are you asking me these questions? But at the same time I was, that I was angry, I was, I was drawn to him because I knew he was, he was calling me to something more. He was calling me to this freedom that I had never experienced before. And that, that freedom that I had tasted here and there throughout my Christian life, I sensed that if I spent more time with this guy, I could have more of that. But I also knew that it was going to be painful. It was joyful yet painful at the same time. Well, we didn't have long. And after, the, after he spoke, we talked a little bit more. And, and I remember as we were getting ready to part, and I, was just, I had all kinds of questions. And I didn't know how to feel about, about these things that he was challenging me with. But he could see that there was shame and there was fear and there was hiding going on. And uh, that I had, I had shut down emotionally in so many ways. And he said, he said, I want to give you some homework. I want you to go home today and I want you to ask your wife this. I want you to ask your wife if she's ever intentionally started a fight with you just to see some emotion. Just to see if you have any life. And I said, that's stupid, Kevin. Of course you didn't do that. He said, I just want you to ask her. I'm like, okay, whatever, it's dumb. So I came home and... Probably after the kids went to bed, I was like, so we had this guy at chapel, spoke at chapel and everything, and they just kind of annoyed me and had a lot of weird questions and stuff. But he said, I should ask you this. And, you know, I'm like, I already know the answer, but I'm just going to ask you because I told him I'd ask you. But uh, he, he wanted me to ask you, have you, if, uh, have you ever started a fight with me just to see if there's any emotion? Like, I know it's stupid. I, you, you can just tell me no, and I'll t- email him. She looked at me, and she's like, of course I have. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, sometimes I just want to know if there's life there. You're going to be so mechanical, such a robot. There's, I just want to sometimes know if you're, you're alive. And I, that, was, that was revolutionary to me. Like, you, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was that obvious. Um, and so Kevin and I emailed a little bit, and, and it began a journey. And I call it a journey because I'm definitely not, I've not arrived anywhere but, but I'm on a journey to, to discover my heart and, and to, to be alive in Jesus. And um, God graciously brought a few years later, in fact, it was October of 2016, Elise and I were at a pastor's conference, a United Brethren Pastor's Conference down in Florida, and we met Mike and Pam Dittman. And we sat at their table, and Mike started doing the same thing that Kevin had done. Had, Kevin had started about three years prior. And I immediately sensed, I cannot, I cannot fake it with this guy. I can't, he's, he's going to see through it all. And he began asking me similar questions, pursuing my heart. Not asking about how the church was, how your sermon's going, but going after my heart. And he's like, you guys live in Michigan? We're like, yeah, we live up in Clare. He's like, my wife and I live in Commerce Township. He's like, you're going to come to my house. We're going to talk more. 
I'm like, oh, great. All right. <laughs> Just looked in my journal this morning. The first time I, I went over to his house was December 14th, 2016. And um, I'd never had a conversation like that with anybody before. And we dispatched with the pleasantries and the superficial stuff. And he began to just ask me questions about my childhood and about my heart. And it was the first time that I realized that all of those things that my dad had said to me, and I, I, there, were, there were other other things that played into that, but all those things that my dad had said to me, I, I, I checked out at some point and I realized it's just safer to be closed off. It's safer to not let people in. People don't let get in, you don't get hurt. And I hadn't realized how it had affected everything. My relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my sons, my relationship with you, my church. It's everywhere. It's like when you, when you spill something on your shirt, everybody can see it but you. And it affected everything. I brought my brother, Pastor Herb, and others along to speak in to me and in my life in this journey. Mike, is con- Mike and Pam have continued to love us and faithfully come alongside us. He loves to hear stories of my heart breaking through. You see, when you do something like this, when you build the walls in your heart, it can't not affect how you see God. I had a dad who was distant, who I, I, couldn't, I couldn't mess up around because it would be mocked or ridiculed or he'd get angry. And so my God was distant. He was happy with me when I did my quiet time faithfully. If, if my thought life was clean, if I, if I talked to people about Jesus, but if I blew it in any way, he turned his back until I had done sufficient penance. He was a God who it wasn't safe to be real and open and vulnerable with. You see, God's not just after our minds. Of course, it's important to know the word of God. But he's after our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that the heart is the source, the, the, the wellspring of our life. Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind and all of our heart. It doesn't do simply to just know about God, to be able to talk about God, to be able to even sing about God. He wants our hearts. I'll be honest with you, it's still an ongoing challenge for me to talk about my heart even with those closest to me. My heart muscle is still weak. It's getting stronger, but it's still weak. Almost a decade into this journey, and I still have so far to go. Coming to you last fall and sharing our need for a sabbatical was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Those old feelings of shame reared their head and said, I knew it. You're weak. A good pastor wouldn't struggle like this. Good pastor would figure it out. How can you expect to minister to people if you can't figure your own junk out? 
the shame, those voices coming back. Stepping into deeply emotional situations rather than running away, solitude, picking up books, shutting down. It's still a great challenge. I've often found it much easier to stand up here and preach a sermon than to talk to my own family about what Jesus is teaching me or what Jesus means to me or struggles I'm having. I still retreat into solitude far too often. I don't know where I would be without my very gracious and patient wife who's walked with me in this journey. If we're going to be the kind of church that experiences genuine fellowship, it's going to take vulnerability. I've said this before, but it's not airing everything out for everybody to see, but being real with those that God has brought into your life, being genuinely honest and vulnerable. What I've shared with you today is only part of my story. And I didn't tell you this today to elicit sympathy or to try to make the message about me. It's much easier for me to exposit scripture than to share my heart. I've shared these things with you because I know that each and every single person in this room has a story of their own. And each and every one of us, if we spent more than five minutes on planet Earth, our story involves loss, it involves heartache, it involves disappointment, it involves very possibly abuse or abandonment. It has twists and turns that we never would have scripted, we never planned for, and have brought about wounds that perhaps are with us to this day. And so all of us have a part. We're tempted to hide from the public view. The shame is too great. We say, I can't let my church friends know about this. There's no way. But see, here's the reality. Here's what I've discovered If we're not able to be vulnerable with God's people, there's a very, very good chance we're not being vulnerable with God. If you and I constantly feel the need to polish up and put a mask on before we engage with one another, I'd be willing to bet that we're doing the same thing with God. My brothers and sisters, he longs for your heart. And furthermore, he longs for each and every one of us to enter into genuine fellowship with one another and to share our hearts with one another. I can testify that it's not easy, but it's worth it. The journey is hard and the journey is long and it's safer to stay quietly in your pew, slip in and slip out each week, to surround yourselves with activity or books or even Bible studies. To keep the wall up. It's easier. But it's not better. It's safer. But it's not what God has called us to do. And the only only reason this is possible. Is because of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us he's broken down the dividing wall. He came to destroy walls. Not to teach us how to build them up. And he longs for us to be able to come and be free and open before him and with one another. Because his blood has covered our sin. He has taken on our shame. He has taken on my fears. My not good enoughness. 
is turned around because of him. His sufficiency has become our sufficiency. This morning we can celebrate communion together because his work is enough. Maybe you couldn't measure up to a demanding mother or father either. But you know what? Jesus Christ has measured up. He has finished the work upon the cross. Through his blood, he has made a way for us to to be free and open before the Father. No masks required. This is not a costume party. This is intimacy with our Heavenly Father. I want to just give us a chance to pray together just to give you a chance, first of all, to, to pray quietly where you are before we have communion. In just a moment, after, after that time of quiet, um, you can just feel free to come on up. Our worship team will, will play, and uh, we have the juice. There's some gluten-free wafers here in the center aisle if, if you need that. And also just a reminder that the, the baskets are there if you feel led to give towards the benevolence offering. We come because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He tells us he's come to heal our wounds, to set the captives free. We sang about it. And he longs to do that for you. In the next two times we're together, we're going to talk about this further and maybe just talk a little bit more about how to do that and how to take those steps. Would you bow with me in prayer?